0: Take your Bibles, please, and turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Paul's first letter to the Corinthians, chapter 15, is our passage for today. And this is the key concept for this morning the counterfeit king's tyranny is defeated. King Jesus is alive. King Jesus is alive. Resurrection Sunday morning, Peggy Key, she's an author and she writes about a situation in her own life. She said, while driving to Easter Sunday a few years ago with my children in the back seat, I told my children the Easter story. I said, this day is the day we celebrate Jesus coming back to life, I explained. And right away, my four-year-old piped up from the back seat, is he going to be in church today? And what's the answer? Yes. He's in church every Sunday, every Sunday. Today we celebrate the shocking culmination of Holy Week. But as we approach this moment in greater understanding, I want you to think back with me to the end of Good Friday. Think back with me to the emotions that must have been felt by the people that experienced the crucifixion of Jesus. First, start with the followers of Jesus. How do you think they felt at the end of Good Friday? They felt sad. They felt brokenhearted. They felt that their hopes were dashed. Probably some of them felt that they had been hoodwinked in some capacity. We thought this one was for real. We thought this was the real deal. He did so much that defied explanation. He said so much that was beyond our imaginations. And now, here we are once again, it looks like we lose, defeated. Somehow we were duped. And then there's the enemies of Jesus. They're thinking, finally. They feel satisfied. They feel smug. They feel like they're rid of a pest that was threatening their way of life. Maybe now they're saying things will get back to normal. Maybe now I won't have to hear the words Jesus of Nazareth ever again. And then there were all those in between, all those people who really didn't know quite what to think. Those are dazed and confused folks. They had heard about the famous preacher being in town, and now they heard that, they, that he's killed. They had seen the crowds, and these are the ones who walked the other way, not wanting to get involved. And when they hear now that somehow his life ended in a tragic end, they're probably thinking to themselves, well, I was smart not to get involved. I was the best policy is just to keep your head down, mind your own business, don't get involved with religious fanatics. And no matter what side of the spectrum you're on, no matter what you were thinking at the end of that terrible night, this was one thing no one was thinking. No one was thinking this is all a plan that is working perfectly according to schedule. Nobody was thinking that. It seemed like chaos. It looked like it was out of control. But the Apostle Paul tells us different in 1 Corinthians 15, verse 3. Follow along. It says this, For what I received I pass on to you as of first importance, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, that He was buried, that He was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures. Now, when Paul says according to the Scriptures, he means in accordance with the Scriptures in accordance with what the Scriptures had predicted all along. All of this was the plan. See, often in the whirlwind of life, it seems like there is no plan. Often as you go through your life, it seems like you're just living one crisis to the next, one crisis to the next, just kind of reacting to whatever's going on around you. Maybe you think once in a while, it would be nice if there was a magic helicopter that I could take up over my life and if I could look down over the span of my life to see if there is a plan, to see if things would fit together, it'd be great to be able to look back over my life and say, oh yeah, I see how that situation connects to this that was coming and and how that's going to make a difference in this moment still in the future. Now I get it. Now I see the plan." But usually we don't have those experiences. Every once in a while down at street level, you might catch a glimpse of a plan. You might encounter someone at a moment where you need them desperately and they say just the right thing and you just feel it was destined for you to be there in that moment. Or maybe you look back over a situation and you thought that this decision or this occurrence was a detour in your life and then you find out this was God guarding me from a greater mistake a greater issue. But in the whirlwind of life, usually these things go unnoticed. And it must have felt like that at the end of Good Friday. But Paul says, as he writes this letter to the Corinthian Christians, over the span now of 25 years later, 25 years later, he reflects on it and he says four all-important words. This was all According to the scriptures. He means the Hebrew scriptures, his Bible, our Old Testament. He says the suffering of Christ, the resurrection of Christ, all of this was according to the plan. It was the fulfillment of the prophecies that have been waiting in our Bibles for hundreds of years, waiting to be fulfilled. It was a plan. And it was a plan that was predicted. He died for our sins according to the Scriptures. Isaiah 53 says this, Surely He took up our infirmities and carried our sorrows. Yet we considered Him stricken by God, smitten by Him and afflicted. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was upon Him. By His wounds we are healed. We all like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way. And the Lord has laid on Him the iniquity of us all. Isaiah wrote those words 750 years before Jesus walked the earth. Isaiah was a prophet in Judah, and most of his words, or at least much of his prophecy, is prophecy of condemnation because the nation was so far from God. He prophesied the Assyrians raising up. He prophesied the Babylonian captivity. He foresaw that the the Israelites would go into exile However, every once in a while, as you read through that great book, you see glimpses interspersed through the hard sayings, glimpses of reminders that God had not abandoned His people and that there would come a day when a wonderful Savior, a Messiah, would be born. Isaiah foresees the coming of Christ as the wonderful counselor, the Prince of Peace, born of a virgin that we celebrate in Christmas. But he also foresees that He would be the sacrificial lamb the Lamb of God who dies on Calvary. And the Lord has laid on him, he says, the iniquity of us all. No human can satisfy that. This was Isaiah looking forward into the future, recognizing that God the Son would come to make a way for us. According to the Scriptures, it all happened. A thousand years before Christ, David was on the throne and he used his poetic skills to pour out his heart In psalms, many of them we have in our Bible today. Some of those psalms are joyful. Some of those psalms are prayers. Some of those psalms are what we call laments, expressing his sadness and his grief. And Psalm 22 is a lament. It's written by David, and it captures his own heartache, but it also describes the cross. Psalm 22, 1, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me, so far from the words of my groaning? Verse 16, dogs have surrounded me. A band of evil men has encircled me. They have pierced my hands and my feet. I can count all my bones. People stare and gloat over me. They divide my garments among them. They cast lots for my clothing. That was a thousand years before Jesus. And all of those details describe what he suffered And Jesus always knew that that was his destination. He always recognized that the scene was not as simple as a spiteful group of religious leaders and impatient Romans wanting to get things back to to normal. He always understood that this was a plan woven together through the threads of time, foreseen by eternity. And he was part of the plan, he chose the plan. In John 10, he says, I lay down my life only to take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have the authority to lay it down and the authority to take it up again. This command I received from my Father. This was his mission. And Paul said, he did all this for our sins. He didn't deserve it. He's the only perfect person. But he's our substitute on that cross. You see, God saw our sin." And he understood that justice demanded that that sin be punished. But out of love, he took that punishment on himself. I heard a story about a man and his son. They were driving down the road on a summer day. They had the windows of the car all rolled down. They were enjoying the breeze when a bee flew into that car. Now, that son was deathly allergic to bee stings, and so he started to panic. And the father looked over, and he saw the horror in his son's eyes And driving with one hand, he reached over his other hand and he took the bee into his palm. And he held the bee there. And then he opened his palm and the bee started to buzz a little bit and the boy got scared again. And the father said, don't worry, I took the sting. And there was the stinger in the palm of his hand. See, that's a picture of the cross. God taking the sting for us. The sting of sin, the sting of death. And Jesus, hanging on the cross, cried out, It is finished because he accomplished the work there according to the scriptures. But then Paul says, And he rose again according to the scriptures. The resurrection was foreseen and predicted. Again, we go to the Psalms, and again, it's the writing of the pen of King David, and he says, Therefore, my heart is glad and my tongue rejoices. My body also will rest secure, because you will not abandon me to the grave, nor will you let your Holy One see decay. The Apostle Peter, in his sermon on Pentecost Sunday, pointed to that verse and said, this is the Scripture that was the foreshadowing that the Holy One Jesus would not see decay. The the resurrection itself foreshadowed in Scripture. And Jesus predicted all these events. In Matthew chapter 20 it says, Now as Jesus was going up to Jerusalem, He took the twelve disciples aside and He said to them, We are going up to Jerusalem and the Son of Man will be betrayed to the chief priests and the teachers of the law. They will condemn Him to death and will turn Him over to the Gentiles to be mocked and flogged and crucified. On the third day, he will be raised to life. Can you get any more accurate than that? According to the scriptures, this was the plan. The plan to accomplish our salvation. And the plan was and the plan came together, the plan worked. We see after the suffering, we see victory. The plan was proved. He was raised from the dead. As we read on in 1 Corinthians 15, Paul says, Jesus, he appeared to Peter and then to the 12. After that he appeared to more than 500 of the brothers at the same time, most of whom are still living, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James and then to the apostles and last of all to me also. The plan was predicted, the plan was completed, and the plan was proven true by eyewitnesses who saw Jesus alive. When he says he appeared, he doesn't mean he appeared in some mystical ghost-like setting. He means we saw him alive after he had been dead. He appeared to Peter, the leader of the church at that time. He appeared to the twelve, which is shorthand for the apostles, the the twelve disciples. He appeared to more than 500 people, Paul says, more than 500. And the implication of the Corinthian letter is that many of those people would have been known to the recipients of the letter. Some are still living, he says. Go and ask them. He appeared. This was just 25 years earlier that all of this happened. They'll be known to you. Go ask them. He appeared to James, who certainly is Jesus' half-brother, who was at first a skeptic, didn't believe that Jesus was the Messiah. But at the time of this writing, James was now wonderfully converted and a leader in the church. He appeared to all the apostles, all those who were serving as missionaries. And finally, Paul says, he appeared to me too. The cumulative evidence is all of this is true. It all came together. And the plan is preeminent. He says, I write this as of first importance. This is the preeminent fact of history, the empty tomb in the sweep of the history of our planet. This is the pivotal moment because now we know that death is defeatable. Now we know we can have hope. There's more to life than just what we're experiencing here and now. In fact, as I like to say, this experience is the shortest part of your life. There is a life after this life, and the resurrection introduces that fact. One writer says this, a new power is let loose in the world, a power to remake what is broken, to heal what is diseased, to restore what is lost. See, as Followers of Christ, we don't have a dead wise man who left us a bunch of sayings. We have God Himself come in human form to rescue us, come to take our punishment and to conquer that punishment and rise again. Christianity is not just a good idea for this life. Death is defeated for all time. And so we know that there is an eternity ahead. Chicago Tribune once wrote a story. It's about a, a French town uh, that passed an unusual law. The name of the town is La Vendue. It's a town on the French Riviera. And they passed a law barring any more burials in the city limits because the cemetery was full. But it's the way they worded the law that was interesting. It says, I'm reading it now, it is forbidden without a cemetery plot to die in the territory of the community. If you don't already own a grave, it's against the law for you to die. Do you think that that's stopping people from dying there? No. There's only one power, one law against dying that really works, and it's the law of the resurrection. It is the promise of new life. It is the blessing that death can be defeated for us. And Paul goes on in 1 Corinthians to explain how it happens. He says, For as in Adam all die, so in Christ will all be made alive. But each in his own turn. Christ the first fruits, And then when he comes, those who belong to him. Those who belong to him will be made alive. See, Christ is coming again. He's living right now, and He's coming again. And the reason He delays in that coming, He explains to us in His Word, is so that we can tell this story, is so that we could spread the message so as many as possible will belong to Him will be in Christ. And what does it mean to be in Christ? It means to be so connected to Him by faith so that you define yourself not so much by yourself but by your union with Him. It's like a prisoner who gets rescued from enemy territory and lives the rest of their life in gratitude for the one who is their rescuer. The resurrection story changes everything. Even though it comes at the end of the Gospels, it is not the end. It is the end of the beginning the beginning of a new order, a new life, and a new hope. But in order to have that hope, the Bible says you have to belong to Him. It means you have to have come to that place when you turn to Jesus in faith and say, I believe that that can change my life. I believe that that forgiveness that you earned me there on the cross, that can be applied to me. I believe that I can start over and now have a life lived in step with what God wants, washed clean of all the filth that I have accumulated over the years and now made new. That's coming to Christ. And that happens by faith, saying, yes, I believe. And that faith is a choice. See, somehow people sometimes think faith's going to creep up on you and beat you over the head and drag you away. No. You choose faith. You choose to believe. And if some of us are right now on the edge of making that choice, I want to help you. Because even though faith happens on the inside, you express it in a prayer. And maybe some of you are ready to pray that prayer right now. And so would you bow your heads and close your eyes. We're going to have a holy moment here. Because if you're ready to pray that prayer, To extend that faith, I'm just going to put words to it and ask you to pray this to God. You can do it silently in your heart, He'll listen. They aren't magic words, but they're meaningful. You say, Lord Jesus, I need you. I believe when you died on the cross, you paid the price for my sin. You earned me forgiveness. Lord, apply that forgiveness to me. I believe you rose again. And today, you want me to live for you. Bring me into your family. Help me to be your child. I want to be born again. Lord, I know that You would want each of us to pray that prayer at some point in our life. You want each of us to cross that threshold from death to life, to say yes to forgiveness. And You want it so desperately, Jesus, that You went to the cross for us. You rose again from the grave for us. You live today and are strong to save. And so, Lord, I pray that if there are those who said yes to that this this morning, That they would know that they're different. That they would sense a newness on the inside. That they would look to you for direction and purpose. And Lord, we would see change because you are powerful. I pray for all of us on this day of celebration. We all rejoice in what we have in you. Thank you, Lord, that we can sing the songs of praise once again and know it to be true. We love you, Lord. In your name we pray. Amen.